Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 110. And today I am doing something different. I get a lot of questions about what it's like to be an oncologist, both from the training, what every day looks like, how I keep up with all the data, how I take care of my mental health, how do I feel when patients recur, have stage four disease, don't make it. And a lot of these questions are hard for me to answer in an Instagram story because they are involved. And I think talking about death and dying is really, really important. But Instagram stories are is not necessarily the right place for it. So what I wanted to do today is answer your questions about what being an oncologist is like. And I want to preface all this by saying this is my experience. These are my coping, you know, these are things that I do and what has worked for me, other people's experiences and work-life balance and all of that is going to look different, but I'm hoping that it will give you a little bit of a glimpse into what being an oncologist is like. And with that, let's get right to it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Part one of this, I want to talk about what it's like to become an oncologist in terms of the training that you need. And then we'll talk a little bit about kind of my day to day and what that looks like for me. To become an oncologist, obviously, you need a college degree, you need to graduate from medical school. And for medical oncology, which is what I do, it is internal medicine residency, which is three years, and then a three-year hematology oncology fellowship. Surgical oncology, gynecologic oncology, all of that is going to look very different. We're just talking about medical oncology here. And remember, that's you know, giving the chemotherapy, giving all the medications, kind of the systemic therapy that we administer. So that's not surgery, that is not radiation. Radiation oncology also is a whole separate residency on its own. It's going to be six years after medical school. Again, that's your three-year internal medicine residency and three-year hematology oncology fellowship. I did a full fellowship, but I only am board certified in medical oncology. And that was a choice that I made. I knew that I would always only want to do medical oncology. And sometimes people get certified in both. Sometimes people don't. um, But that's something that I decided for myself. I specialize in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. Whether or not you treat everything or you subspecialize really depends on one, your interests, your goals, and also your practice environment. I knew from the beginning that I did not want to treat everything. And I think that is a great, a 
you know, it's a great thing for some people. It just wasn't what I wanted. And the beauty of medicine is that we do get to pick what we want and what we don't want to do. So I knew that I was always want to, wanted to specialize and I always wanted to do women's health. And so that evolved into initially wanting to do gynecologic medical oncology. And then I added breast cancer to that. And I love it. Um, women's health has always been a huge passion of mine. And so the ability to treat these cancers day in and day out is really kind of a dream come true for me. But because I knew that's what I wanted to do, when I looked for jobs at a fellowship, I was looking for a position where I was able to do that. And where I work now is not my first job at a fellowship, but when I was transitioning jobs, it kind of then felt natural that I would continue to do what I was doing. Now, granted, sometimes people do switch jobs and switch career tracks. And so they change the cancer that they specialize in. But that's something that um, I was fortunate enough to be able to continue to do what I love. The practice environment also really matters. There is academic medicine. So that's going to be kind of your big cancer center that you think about. And in those situations, most people specialize. In community practices, very often people do not specialize. I work in this really great system that's kind of a hybrid model. In my practice, every oncologist specializes in one or two cancers, and that works for us. That's a model that I really like, and I think the key is to find a model that works for you. For me personally, I am not able... And I knew I wouldn't be able to keep up with everything. Some people can, and that's amazing. I just found that I'm the kind of person that makes, that likes to know um, a lot about a little, and that really is my style and what works best for me. Partly what I love about the specialization also is that you become enmeshed in this field and you get to know people in this field from all over the country. And so when you do that, when you have that small cohort of people that treat the same cancer, it's really helpful if you need advice, if you need someone to turn to to run a case by or, hey, say, do you have a clinical trial available? So this builds this really great community that I love. In terms of what my day to day looks like, I got a bunch of questions about that. And I will say that, you know, what how my day structured really works for me and you know, in terms of the hours and things like that, everyone is going to adjust their schedule to what works better for them. What my day looks like is I see patients four days a week. I'm in the office five days, but that fifth day, I am doing meetings, research, administrative stuff. And it works because I get to put most of my meetings on that day. And then the rest of the week, I'm really more focused on seeing patients. I start seeing patients around nine. Some people will start earlier. I have kids and I have to get them to preschool. And so it works much better for my schedule. I get to work out in the morning, get the kids ready and start seeing patients at nine. And I usually see patients until about five o'clock. I'm pretty busy. And so very often I will see patients kind of, you know, nonstop throughout the day. Um, but it's always nice when I get a little bit of a break in between. And in terms of my call schedule, we have seven doctors in our practice that take call. And what that looks like is once a week, sorry, once every seven weeks, one of us is on call. That means that instead of coming to the office at nine o'clock, I will 
go to the hospital and see all of the patients that are admitted, whether they are patients of our group, whether they're a patient with a new diagnosis or have a, let's say anemia and things like that, that require a, um, consultation, then I will, will, you know, I'll see them there. And then it varies. Sometimes the list is longer, sometimes it's not. And then in the second half of the day, I will come back to the office and see patients. On the weeks that we're on call, we also round on the weekends. So we go in on Saturday and Sunday to see the patients admitted. And we're also taking phone calls after hours and on the weekends about, you know, let's say a patient from our practice calls with a fever, or they're nauseous from chemotherapy, you know, anything we're answering all those phone calls. And I think if you're listening and you are maybe a graduating fellow or a fellow thinking about looking for a job, I do think that the call schedule, while is not the most important, I do think it matters because if you are on call all the time, it's hard to not, not only is it that week or that day that's busy, but it's also hard to catch up because imagine, you know, the call weeks are really for us are busy. And so then the week after, I feel like I'm always kind of catching up on what did I miss the last week or you know, making sure I've gotten to all of the, the labs and the results and all of that. And so, you know, if you're constantly on call, it can be hard to catch up. And I think that that does affect your work-life balance. So in my mind, I think the call schedule is something that is absolutely worth knowing about before you go into a practice. One of the questions I got was, you know, how late do I stay after work for administrative work? And I think that's a really, really important question. And this is for all fields of medicine, but being an oncologist, being any doctor, really, it doesn't stop, you know, when that last patient leaves the office because we have to, you know, so I'll give you an example, right? All of my patients on chemotherapy, they're getting labs every week. So I'm reviewing those labs. Everyone who comes in for their six-month follow-up, they're getting labs. All of the scan results, all of the messages from patients. And I love the patient portal. I encourage all my patients to message me through the portal rather than you know calling and waiting to speak to someone and playing phone tag. Portal is a great way to communicate, but that does add up. And so that could look like anywhere from 100 to 200 things a day that I have to look at. Now, a lot of that is quick chemotherapy blood work, but it, you know, you still want to make sure that you're giving it your dedicated time and attention. I try to kind of get to a couple after each patient so that I am not facing 200 results in whatever form at the end of the day. With an oncologist, not only are we dealing with that, but there's also the added part of chemotherapy orders. And every time a patient starts a new chemotherapy, every time their chemotherapy needs to be renewed, those are all orders that we have to put in. And that takes time. And I really am very careful about giving that dedicated and protected time because, you know, even though there are, there are numerous checks on chemotherapy orders by the nurses, by the pharmacists, and but it's still really important to me that I sit without distractions and I'm putting those chemotherapy orders in, I'm double checking, I'm triple checking everything because you really want to make sure that that is done as you know correctly every single time. As you can imagine, all of this takes time. You know, some days there's less or easier results and 
some days, you know, you get a lot of scan results that I have to call a lot of patients for. And I really try to get scan results out to people as soon as I get them, because I know that scan anxiety is real and people are waiting, waiting, waiting for those results. So in terms of time, it's different. You know, I think it just depends on the day. I do probably spend, I want to say about an hour at least after each clinic um, doing that stuff. You know, sometimes I have to leave and I'll end up doing that later in the evening or come in earlier in the morning to do it. But on average, probably about an hour, hour and a half, but I'm also doing as much as I can throughout the day. So I am, you know, again, like I said, in between every patient, if I have five minutes, that's a phone call I could make. So I am really just moving and hustling throughout the day to make sure that we are getting results to patients in a timely manner, but also that I'm not here for three, four hours after each clinic doing that. A lot of what I do after I'm done with clinic is the programmatic, the research, my social media, um, and those things really bring me a lot of joy. And I find that it actually helps me not burn out and not and, and, and recharge. I think that a lot of that work helps me sometimes see the bigger picture besides, you know, day in and day out. You know, it, it's a, you know, seeing being an oncologist is a lot. It, it's not just seeing patients. It's all of the paperwork, the notes and the, you know, all of the stuff that we just talked about. So having that other stuff, I love it. And I feel like it's truly, truly helped me prevent burnout. The last thing that I'll mention in kind of the day-to-day life is, and I didn't talk about this yet, but is documentation. This is a, you know, a huge issue um, because there, you know, years ago when they, there were no electronic medical records, people would write one or two sentences in the chart. You know, this woman is on tamoxifen. She's doing well. She has no sign of recurrence and she'll be back in six months. Now there are clicks upon clicks and documentation that is really, really long. And, you know, we have to verify everything and it's all with good intention, but it really takes a lot of time. And I was getting to a point where I felt like all I was doing all the time was writing notes all the time. And I had one weekend where I went home and I had 40 patient charts to close and I spent my entire weekend doing it. And finally, I was like, this is just not, this is not sustainable. I am losing the joy that I get from seeing patients. I am just a miss, you know, I, I'm, it's too much. And so what I started doing was really finishing each note after that patient encounter. And for a year, I said to myself, I am going to close every single patient chart that day. And it took a while to kind of get used to this because again, that sometimes required me staying a little bit later, doing some charts at home. And I realized that if I wanted to do this, I would have to write the notes as I was talking to patients. And I was nervous about this because I didn't want to take away, take my energy away from the patient. But I realized that I had to do that so that I didn't spend hours at night doing it so that I maintained my professional satisfaction so that I wasn't getting annoyed and angered at all of this extra documentation. And 
I did it. I did it for a year. I closed every single chart. And I, I can't say that I do that now. I've, I've occasionally will close a chart the next day or the day after that, but it taught me the good habits that, you know, and also documenting in real time is so much more effective because you remember everything and you, you have everything written down. It's accurate. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll read it back to the patient. So, or I, or I'll talk out loud as I'm typing. And so what that does is patients know what's in their chart, what I put in their chart. And we make sure that all that information is accurate. Another question that I got was, how do you feel when you have to cut your session short with patients and how often it happens? And I will say this happens a lot and it sucks. It really is terrible. You know, the nature of what we do is that I have to see, I see a lot of patients a day. I see about 20 patients a day. And, you know, if it's a simple follow-up, that's doable, but it's very often not a simple follow-up. And when you think about everything that you have to get done in 15 minutes, it's really not a lot of time at all. Now I am able to structure my day so that if I know patients are coming in for, let's say scan results, or we're going to talk about a new therapy, or doing a first follow-up after chemotherapy, things like that, then I will make sure they are scheduled for a longer appointment. I also have buffers built into my day so that if something goes late, I have a 10, 15 minute window where I can catch up before the next patient. And that really has helped, I think, cut down on significantly running late, but I will tell you that it happens. And sometimes, yes, I have to cut a visit short. And I, and I hate when it happens because I feel like I didn't get to answer all the questions or we didn't get to finish the conversation. But when that happens, I try to be honest and I will say to the patient, you know, I think you need more time to talk about this. Can you come back? Can we set up a virtual visit, a phone visit? And, you know, when you come back next time, let's spend more time talking about this. And I think in patients that are coming more often, whether they're on chemotherapy or other treatment, if they're coming monthly, you're able to do that because they know they're going to come in or I'll have them come in for an extra visit and they'll have that dedicated time. But I think anyone who tells you that they never have to cut their visit short is not telling the truth or they work in some amazing place where they can spend hours with patients. But um, it's just the nature of what we do. And I think if you're lucky enough, like I am to be able to adjust your schedule, you try to minimize when that happens. The next part that I wanna talk about is how you keep up with all of the research and the data, because that question came up a lot. And I will say that I'm fortunate because again, I really am specializing in breast and gynecologic cancer that I, you know, I, I only have to really keep up with those two areas. And I have all these resources when I'm rounding in the hospital with all my other partners that I can always run something by them. And when I mean keep up with, I'm talking about, you know, the latest, I'm obviously staying tuned if there's major studies in, let's say, colon cancer, I'm keeping up with that. But the nuances of treating, you know, do I give this dose or that dose? How do I sequence the drugs? These are things that are done, not inpatient, they're done as an outpatient basis. So I'm really focusing on the cancers that I treat. Conferences are 
fantastic. I think that they are an amazing, amazing way. And the best part about them is that it's dedicated time. You know, we saw with COVID when the conferences were virtual that you just, you couldn't do it. You know, the conference was a weekend, but there's so many other responsibilities and things that you're doing that you get to tune into the conference for an hour here, an hour there, and you're not getting that same immersive experience. So I love going to conferences. The two that I go to every year are ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And others sometimes I'll do virtually or at least kind of keep up on the updates from the meeting. But those conferences are a really great way to immerse yourself in all the latest research. I also routinely will check the big journals. So that's the New England Journal of Medicine, the um, uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Clinical Oncology Practice, and a couple others that I, you know, do get the hard copies for. So I read, I like hard copies, um, but I also scroll like through the online table of contents for some others and, and make sure that I'm keeping up with that. And actually what I sometimes will do too, um, and I will actually just type in cancer on Google news and I'm going to, I see what's out there. Cause sometimes you pick up on stuff that like, does, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have heard about, but you kind of are just in tune with what is happening in that lay in the lay press and the media. And I think that's also important. The next thing to talk about, and I think a lot of this was, you know, kind of boiled down to is, is it hard being an oncologist? And do you feel responsible when patients don't do well? And how do you deal with patients not doing well? You know, how do you find the balance between caring for patients and not letting it affect you personally? And I will say that there's no answer for this, but I will tell you this. I have always said that the day that I stop caring, that the day that I do not get upset when I see a bad scan or have to call someone or sit sit across from them and give them bad news is the day that I should leave this field because you have to care. You have to, you, these are people's lives. You, You have to care. You know, when I see a high rising tumor marker, uh, or a bad scan, or when I see a lower tumor marker, or great scan, you know, I feel those lows and I feel those highs. And, you know, I think I always tell my patients that we are a team. And as part of a team, you feel all those emotions, obviously not to the same degree. But I'm right there with you. And I think that you can't turn off those emotions. But I think having a way to deal with them and having a coping way, focusing on mental health is really, really important. And for me, that looks like a couple of different things. One, exercise. Exercise is just a way for me to really get clear-headed. Running is so helpful for me. Um, and I that's why I like to start my day with exercise. I kind of just, I don't know, go in to work feeling as clear-headed as I can be and feeling as mentally and physically charged as I can be. The other thing that helps me is having a little bit of distance from the end of my workday to when I get home. So that looks like a 20 minute drive. And I sometimes will call patients when I'm driving, but I try to have that 20 minutes to myself. Um, And sometimes when the day is really heavy and very often it is, 
sometimes I will, I will just drive home in silence that I don't even have the, the desire or the energy to listen to my audiobook or a podcast or music. Like I just need that silence to kind of sit in it. And I find that that distance helps me almost, I don't say transition, but leave the hardness and the heaviness. And I don't think you ever leave it, but you do need to kind of separate a little bit and go home and, and be a mom and a wife and, you know, do dinner and bath and bedtime and, and all of that. I also find that having people to talk to at work. So having a team that you can talk about these hard things with is really important because if you carry it just in you, it's, it's hard and you don't have anyone to talk to about it. You know, when someone dies, when someone is not doing well, when someone's cancer recurs, it affects us. And having your team members, whoever that is, whether if you're in academics, whether that's fellows, whether that's your nurse, your nurse practitioner, physician assistant, your, you know, your office coordinators, your medical assistants, whoever is part of your team, your research team, whoever that is, having people to talk to. And sometimes just not that you can do anything, but just to say, you know, wow, this was, this is really heavy and this is really hard. And you know, that I think helps. One of the most challenging parts, I think, of my job is you will have a conversation about hospice or a really bad scan with someone and their family, and you're having really difficult conversations, making really challenging choices about it. And then you have to go into the next patient room and Maybe you're celebrating a good scan, or maybe it's a routine six month follow up. And it's this kind of roller coaster of emotions that happens that is, I think, is sometimes hard. And I will always sometimes just take like two to three minutes and I will go into my office and I'll close the door and I will just breathe. And I think that is really helpful. I also like to connect with the patient's family after they've passed, whether that be through a card or a phone call or however. Um, and a lot depends on too on my relationship with the family. I think that brings, that's a level of healing that we need. I remember the patients that we've lost and I remember, you know, my relationship with them and I am grateful to them for the privilege of being able to be their doctor and humble that I had that privilege. It's hard. And there's, there's no other way there, there's no other way around it. But I think having ways to handle and process those emotions is really, is really, really critical. I'm going to answer this last question and we'll do rapid fire. This question came up a lot. I think it was the most commonly asked question. And it was, do I worry a lot about getting cancer myself? And to be honest, I actually, it was it was surprising to me that I got this question a lot because it's something that I've never, ever been asked before, but it, it came up the most common one. And I will say, I actually don't worry about it. And I, I think about it. I think about if I were to be diagnosed, what I would want or how I would approach it or what I would do. And I 
I kind of laugh at that because I think you never truly know until you're in that situation. But I do think about it because I'm surrounded by it all day long. But I don't worry about it. And I think because I can't control them. And I really try and it's not great at it, obviously, but I really try not to worry about things that I cannot control. Because if I am at some point in my life going to get diagnosed with cancer, then worrying about it now isn't going to change that outcome. What I do try to do is practice what I preach. And that is, you know, focusing on living a healthy lifestyle and reducing my risk as much as possible, just like I ask everyone to do. And I think that, you know, that's something that we can focus on and we can control our lifestyle and our behavior in that regard. You know, when I tell people, you know, I recommend exercising and limiting your alcohol use and limiting red meat. These are all things that I have incorporated into my lifestyle. And I never tell people something that I wouldn't, that I either don't do or wouldn't be able to do. Now we'll do a couple of rapid fire questions and we will call it a day. So number one, do you keep patients that refuse treatment? Yes. First of all, I don't like to say refuse. I think that as my job, my goal is to recommend a treatment, to talk about the risks, the benefits, why we do it, why we don't do other things. And as my patient, I want you to make the best decision for you. That may not be the recommended choice, and that's okay. As long as you understand the goals and the, the risks and the benefits of each approach, and you make an educated decision for yourself, I am always going to be in support of that. You know, my goals are not someone else's goals. And so I absolutely, I don't like to use the word refuse. With that said, if a patient, if let's say I have said, you know, we, I would recommend tamoxifen in this situation and a patient decides not to go on tamoxifen for whatever reason, sometimes I will still follow them. Um, And sometimes as long as they're following up with someone on their oncology team, whether that, let's say that could be a breast surgeon or something like that, then I don't always. So it's an individual decision. I always will talk to the patient about that. And I will say, I'm happy to see you. I want you to be following up with someone from the oncology team. And sometimes patients want to come. um, And other times they say, you know what, Um, I'm going to stick with the breast surgeon just to limit, you know, not have as many appointments. So Whatever that is, that's a very individual decision, but I will never, ever say to someone, I'm not going to follow you because you do not do what I recommended. I think that that is not okay. Question number two, do you get enough recharge time? I think so. Um, Not every week and some days are longer than others. And I would love more time to honestly, like, sit and watch a show or movie because I definitely don't do that. But I feel like I get to do all the things that I love. And so for the most part, yes, I feel like I do get enough time to recharge. Again, some weeks, no, some weeks, yes. And that's life. It just, there's harder and easier days and that comes and goes. Number three, how much sleep do you get a at night. Uh, definitely not enough. This is one of those things where I definitely don't do what I do. Um, and I need to get more sleep, but I'm trying to prioritize that. And I'm starting to prioritize that by at least limiting 
my use of screen, my, you know, my phone and not going on my phone kind of right before I go to bed. Cause I do think that that gives better quality sleep, cutting out alcohol during the week, which we did a couple of years ago actually helps a lot with sleep, but yes, I have a lot of things that I love to do. And so that unfortunately requires me to not sleep as much, but it's not great. And I am working on it. I forgot what number we're on, but this question is, do you think about your patients after hours? Yes, all the time. Um, you just, you can't shut it off. I mean, I, again, like I said, I try, have my ways where I, I able to separate a little bit work and home, but complicated cases, you know, things that I am maybe I'm going to do a little bit of research to figure out how to best treat the patient. So yes, I am always thinking about patients. Next question is how much um, do you check email after hours? And I'm really guilty of this. I am not good at shutting that off. I am always responding to email. And lastly, we will end this on a very positive note. And this question was, what are you most excited about in oncology advancements? And Oh my gosh, there are so, so many things. I went to ASCO in June and I shared that they had presented the data for this drug in HER2, or trastuzumab duroxycan, which was a drug previously approved only for HER2 positive breast cancer. And they did it in, in something called HER2 low breast cancer. So previously, very quickly, you were either HER2 negative or HER2 positive. And now there's this new classification where you could be HER2 low. So they use this drug in that HER2 low population, which is an extra 50% of patients with metastatic breast cancer. And the drug was a slam dunk. It was incredible to the point where after the presentation, the thousands of people in that room, oncologists, patient advocates, industry, pharma, news, press, everyone gave up, stood up and gave the presenter a standing ovation. And oh my gosh, I don't think that I, I share that video and I don't think I did it justice. I just, I, that was this incredible moment because we are moving the needle. We are advancing and advancing cancer. I remember when this drug was just started in clinical trials and here we are with these incredible results and improving survival for patients. Patients are living longer. And so there is, there are so many advancements coming, targeted therapies, really personalized medicine, figuring out how we treat each cancer rather than just throwing chemotherapy at it. And we still do that, but we're personalizing the care. And that is incredible. I think that I think back to when I was a fellow and it's funny because I will never forget this, but a friend of mine, my co-fellow, she um, was doing melanoma research and she kept telling me immunotherapy is the wave of the future. And I was like, no, no, it's not, please. It works in melanoma, but doesn't work anything else. Targeted therapy, you know. And so we used to go back and forth. And I always laugh about this because immunotherapy is the, it's here and it is amazing and it is effective and it really has revolutionized how we treat oncology. And that was not a long time ago. And so I think that there's just so much on the horizon that we are moving toward improving outcomes. We have a long way to go, but we've also come a long way, even in just my short career. And so I am, I'm so hopeful by that. Every time we see a new drug, a new trial that 
that improves the outcome even just a little bit or improves quality of life. Uh, or we see research that tells us how we could lower our risk of getting cancer. That is incredible. All right, that's Oncology Life in a Nutshell. This was a really fun episode to record because I, I never really get to talk about this stuff. And I think that it is important. And I think it's important for people to know what, what being an oncologist is like. And I hope this gave you a little bit of a glimpse into that. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Dr. Duplinsky. If you enjoyed this episode or any others, as always, I am so grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review for the Interlude Podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because that helps me grow the show, bring it to new listeners. It takes five seconds and it would really help me out. Thank you all again and I will see all of you soon. 